The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot. Registration is open for No Longer Virtual, coming up February 26th and 27th, 2024, in Missoula, Montana. Limited to 25 participants, you make this event meaningful. Topics for the sessions this year include managing life and work as an entrepreneur or internal innovator, finding creativity at work, using Agile, the project structure usually associated with IT work, to improve communication and outcomes in your non-tech business, and so much more. Every session is hosted by the people who attend. No keynotes. All sessions are interactive workshops to get the most out of those side conversations and leverage all of the great experience that's already in the room. But what people who attend NLV say they value the most about this summit is the relationships they build that continue to support and nurture them at work and in their career throughout the year and well into the future. Early registration is extended through January 15th, 2024, and there are a few spots left. So join us. Don't miss this opportunity. Register at elkinsconsulting.com. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. Whether you're sharing business stories or personal stories, how you share them matters. And the stories that you tell say a lot about who you are. The stories you tell about other people say even more about who you are. My guest today is a specialist in helping people tell the stories that are going to resonate with other people. And you are going to love this conversation with Amanda Edgar. And just so that our listeners understand how this happened, they anyone who's listened to this podcast before knows that I don't really believe in coincidence. Everything just happens the way it's supposed to. Although we can put ourselves in a position so that things happen are more likely to happen to us or for us. Anyway, uh, I had received a, a message from Amanda's publicity people asking to be on my podcast. And probably within the 24, 48 hours of receiving that, I don't remember if it was before or after, I had been introduced to a memoir writer named Gail Harris um, by my friend, Jeff Eichler. And as I looked at Gail's interview, I realized it was with Amanda Edgar, my guest for today on Your Stories Don't Define You. So having all of those things come together at the same time is always, to me, a time to embrace the unknown, to really treasure what happens in your life that there's no explanation for. So, Amanda, I am so glad to have you on this episode of Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Well. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so excited for this interview. Thank you. Well, I, I love this kind of conversation because um, I know that you are a publisher and you understand um, what it takes to tell a good story. So this particular episode, I just know is not just going to resonate with people, but I know I'm going to learn something today, guaranteed. So I'm looking forward yeah. to it. I'm, yeah, I, we we were talking before we pushed record, which 
<laughs> we said we better record, but I already feel like I got so much out of it. So really excited to share with people. Yes. So uh, you know, from listening to a couple of episodes if, that I love to start this recording by asking you to share something about yourself that most people don't know about you. And I do that so that our listeners have a multidimensional experience with you throughout our conversation. So what do you have that you can share with us? Well, I have a kind of fun one, I think. And and a lot of people do actually know about this, but I find that people don't connect it to me. So I thought that it would be a fun thing to share. So years ago, 2019, pre-pandemic, I happened upon a Twitter thread that said, share your most unbelievable story, a story that is true, but that people would not believe it's true. And I, you know, I was just playing on social media like you do. So I popped a little story into that comment and then I went to sleep. In the morning, I woke up and it had 500,000 likes. (gasps) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Many thousand shares, all kinds of replies. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was not trying to go viral. (laughs) Especially when it happens, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But especially with the story. So the story is that when I was in college, I had a bunk bed and I went to bed on the top bunk and I had not slept walked in a long time. But that night, I sleptwalked and jumped off of the bunk bed. And I did so just right so that I broke both of my legs and my arm. Very dramatic. It was pretty terrible, actually, but it's years ago, you know. Right. So an EMT had to come up. There were no elevators in the storm. An EMT had to come up. Um, They carried me down this flight of stairs, whatever. So years later, I had a date with this guy. And we were just chatting, whatever. And I was talking about, I'm, I'm a clumsy person, is what it is. And he was like, well, you cannot be as clumsy. Like, listen, I have the stories of clumsy because my brother is an EMT. Oh, no. And he says, listen, he had this girl that fell off of her bunk bed and she broke all of her bones. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> oh, it, that's me. <laughs> so I had just put that into some tweet and apparently you know, the right people saw it, I think, and shared it and whatever. And I will still get inbox messages. I think that was truly the late 2019 or maybe early 2020. I will still get inbox messages of people saying, is this true? Did you marry that guy? And I did not marry that guy. (laughs) But it is a totally true story. And um, a lot of times people don't connect it with me. So that's me. See it on BuzzFeed or, you know, Tinder or wherever (laughs) they're sharing it. I love that. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Wow. All I can think (laughs) is I'm clumsy, but I don't, that is not something I'm just going to knock wood over here at that whole superstition (laughs) of not saying something like this because then something happens, which, you know, take it or leave it. Right. But, oh my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I will do. I didn't have a roommate. And I, why oh. was I sleeping on the top bunk? I don't even. I had. The- and you were by yourself. How did you get help? Did oh, it was. And it was no. And it was a different world because we didn't have cell phones. Right. I didn't have a cell right. phone then. So yeah. fortunately, I had my my phone, my landline phone. I had actually up by the bunk bed usually, but fortunately, I had not hung it up. It was like a cordless. So it was on my desk. So I had to just pull myself over to the phone. Pain. It was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty awful. But pain is so weird because one thing that I remember so clearly is that I woke up on the floor and went back to sleep 
<laughs> just on the floor. On the floor. Just, I guess, out of not being able to, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but <laughs> sure there's all kinds of process reasons. Process the trauma of your body. But my poor wow. boyfriend at the time, who I called and was just like sobbing, and I mean, you can imagine, thought that yes. someone had broken into my dorm room and was murdering me. <laughs> oh. So anyway, we were able, you know, we were able to obviously get help and whatever up there, but right. a very, very dramatic story. And then, of course, I couldn't wash my hair until my arm healed. And I was in, you know, in a wheelchair, yes. although if you're, you know, I had to move back in with my parents. If your home is not built for a wheelchair, uh-huh. you can't use a wheelchair. So anyway, it was a quite an experience. <laughs> wow. So, okay, this is, it's triggering all kinds of questions for me, but I want to, I want to add this into what we wanted to talk about, which is um, the, the beauty of what you do in your work. And this is kind of a perfect example Because so many people have stories, not obviously maybe as dramatic, but still traumatic for them, or even just um, weird and funny that they don't realize can, they can share the story and be inspiring or make somebody laugh or let have somebody else remember their own story as a result of them sharing it. I love that. Exactly right. Exactly right. Because it is relatable. And one of the things that I hear people say so often is they will say, well, who am I to tell my story? No one cares who I am. I'm not Britney Spears or Michelle Obama. Nobody cares about my story. And I always tell them they don't care about your story because they don't know it yet. If you haven't shared it, you don't have any data of whether people will care or not care. And I will tell you, I really did not think anybody was going to do anything with that tweet. I truly, I probably wouldn't have tweeted it if I would have known. <laughs> <You'd> known. <laughs> I was not. I truly am a pretty private person in my my personal life. I don't usually share stuff about my personal life, you know, unless there's a good reason. But people did care. I mean, actually, I was I was interviewed by a network TV rep that wanted to think about a TV show. I mean, it was huge. I did never had struck me that it was that good of a story. So right. you don't know until you start you sharing. Know. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's the whole point of this podcast. With Love it. over 300 episodes, too many interviews that I, I can't count because it wasn't just the episodes that I published, but also on my client work of guiding them to tell the right story at the right time. And so many times it's a matter of just uncovering one little piece of a story that then tumbles out of them like a snowball coming down a hill, right? That you just have to find that one little nugget that that reminds them of something that happened. Yeah. And that's the that's the authentic storytelling mm-hmm. is when it's not something you have planned out so carefully and it's edited to death and you, you know, you made sure that you never said the wrong word or you don't have any ums or, you know, in an <laughs> audio format or in a book, you know, oh, I have to make sure it's perfect. It's not going to be perfect. Nothing is perfect. <laughs> exactly. no, nothing that is art is perfect. Yeah. Right. And just before we hit record, one of the things we're talking about is how endearing it is to experience the imperfections as as an outsider. And my example was that um, my editor, my dear friend, Neil, who who is the reason this podcast exists, 
didn't take out one little interruption of an episode where I said, oh, sorry, Neil, I'm going to do that again. And my sister wrote me this message and said, hey, Sarah, today's episode, you probably want to know that this is in there. Um, but I don't think you should do anything about it because I think it's adorable. That was my example. And then you had an example. Well, yeah. So I we're we're promoting right now a group program that we have for women who want to write their memoir, get training and support, whatever. So I was going live today just to do a Q&A and just check in with people, encourage them to sign up. And yeah, I got a couple messages from people that I had known years and years ago just saying, oh, did you know you're, you know, something's happened with your audio. It just sounded really weird to me. And I, you know, I just, I replied and said, thank you so much for the feedback. Really, I'm not going for perfection with a live, you know, that's, it, I'm really not ever going for perfection because I don't believe that truly anything that is human, anything that is artistic, anything that is authentic and genuine and gets people invested, I don't think any of that's perfect. So I am happy to be a person that models that. Now, of course, in my work, we we do excellent, very high quality. I have a very, very high standard of what is, you know, what our work is in our business. But I don't think there's, I don't think it's healthy to try to have every single thing in every aspect of your life be perfect. It's, it is a recipe for being, looking really great from the outside and being really miserable on the inside. Feeling ridiculous, acute anxiety all the time. Agreed. Agreed. And the the thing that really struck me in what you just said is that it is those imperfections that make us connect with each other. And if we're, if we are so intense about making something perfect, then we are missing out on an opportunity to demonstrate imperfection so that other people feel permission and validated for imperfection. The, ex the uh, example that popped into my head as you were talking is my favorite recording of Mama Cass Elliot singing Dream a Little Dream is a live radio show. And every time I perform that song with one of the, the bands that I perform with, I introduce it by telling this story. I remind my audience. So Mama Cass Elliot is on this live radio program and she's introduced by the MC and he says, and here, here is Dream a Little Dream with Mama Cass Elliot. And right before she starts to sing, you hear her go, <clears throat> clear her throat, right into the recording. And every time I hear that, I get a chill because I feel like I'm standing right there with her. That's right. It's, it is such a basic human thing. Oh my God, that, I got goosebumps. I love that story. Absolutely. Well, and I think too, you know, from something as small as an, a little audio detail like that, but even we, um, we released a memoir in October and, um, it was a, a man who's a community leader and he has done all of these things, um, to help his, the children of his community. He's basically, he saw the drug wave come in in the eighties and nineties, didn't want the kids to get, you know, sucked into that. And so he decided he had to make an intervention, but um, and I, I will shout him out. The Ignorant Man's Son is the title of the book by Victor James Hill. It's excellent. Pick it up. But um, one thing that we had to talk about as we were working on that book was how much he was going to share of his own mistakes. Because it's one thing to say, oh, I saw all these things around me. I had to do something. Well, of course, no one is going to fault you for that, right? 
But as we started talking, you know, he said, well, he shared with me a story that's in the book. He shared with me that he had had a phase as a, a young adult where he was a building manager for an apartment complex. And he got in the habit of going into people's apartments and he would look for their marijuana stash, take a little bit, put it back, just perfect. And he said, if I share that, are people going to think I'm evil? Are people going to think I'm a bad person? And I said, people will think you are a real person and they will think you you are being open and authentic with them because you are. And it's mm-hmm. it was hard for him. He had, he had to think about it to think about whether we wanted to put that in the book, which I see that all the time. People don't, it's your mistake. You don't know how people are going to react. But truly within a month of having that book out, he had gotten multiple messages from men in prisons saying, I am so glad you wrote about how you turn things around because I'm going to get out and I want to turn things around too. And Mm. that is not a message that's going to come from a book that's just about all the great smart things you did and you never messed up, right? You're not going to get that kind of connection. Right. And you might still get some sort of, I don't know, you could still get a bestseller, but the connection is why we write certain books, right? I mean, that's that's why I wrote a book. That's why I'm working on another book is it's it's not about me necessarily. I mean, it is because it's a book with my stories. And at the same time, I, I think the most successful books in terms of what your goal is come from knowing what you want people to get out of reading it. Exactly, right. exactly. What is the point? of connection or, you know, the point of epiphany is how we talk about it a lot. What is the wisdom that you got? Because that's how you're serving. The story Mm -hmm. will make it interesting and engaging. So people want to keep reading it. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the takeaway. The takeaway is going to be something much larger, much more universal. Right. So I'm still coming back to this idea of um, not being perfect, not striving to be perfect, striving to be the best that we can be. And the thing that popped into my head was, that um, we can take what we do seriously, but the damage comes when we take ourselves too seriously. And when I think about your work and how how personal it is, it's not one of those where you can say, oh, it's just business because it's not. And it never really is. I mean, that's, that's such a, a crappy thing for people to say, it's just business. But what I'd like to hear from you is a time when you shared that honest truth with somebody and they weren't ready to hear it. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I would say that happens all the time. And a lot of what I do in my work, we we do not rush projects. All of our projects are long engagements because I think it is so important to build that trust and build that relation. And it just takes a long time to write a book too. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> For some of us, it's more than others. <laughs> well, that's part of the process though. And so I, I find that a lot of times people just need a little bit of time to warm up to things. And, you know, I don't want to just put Victor on the spot over and over, but he he was so vulnerable with me and so willing to take things that I would suggest and really think on them. So I want to I want to share another story from his book and the process of that book. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he one of the things that he had done in helping his neighborhood's children was that when his sister got addicted to crack cocaine, 
her children were taken away. And he was there in a second and said, I, I will take them. And a bachelor at this point, and he he talks about he had this bachelor pad, and he had like a weight room in one of the bedrooms. And, and he had to paint that weight room pink because he was bringing little girls in. And he wanted to make sure they felt really at home and loved and all of the things we want, you know, from kids that are going through such a major trauma. So we had written all of this out, including some scenes where his sister, while she was still addicted, she had, you know, come into his house and was, you know, dealing drugs and all kinds of things that really now, now that she is clean, now that she is highly involved in her grandchildren's lives, really are embarrassing. They're not the Mm -hmm. kind of thing anybody wants out. And I did not tell him one way or another, because that is not mine to tell. But I did say think about the pros and the cons of telling that aspect of the story. And he went and talked to her and said, this is really hard and I will respect your decision. But if you will allow me to share this story, I think it can help so many people. We can get out there. We can make sure that it is not just, you know, the people that got into the trouble that he'd gotten into, but also people who have suffered from addiction and been drawn in by, by all of these these things that really take over your life. And it took a while. I think it was probably about a month while we were just continuing to write and he was thinking about it and talking to her. And I'm so happy that he decided to put that in there, but it is really hard. I I did not have the correct answer for that. Right. There is no right answer. And, And the fact that he honored her, first of all, by asking and talking to her and giving her time to consider whether that was something that she wanted out there. Uh, That just speaks volumes about both of you and about her. And it's because she had a a relatively, and because everything's relative, relatively happy ending. It's not an ending, but the next chapter is relatively happy in her life, in her book. So I, I think that that's part of why it works, right? If you, if you tell the story and she's still in that condition, then it doesn't, there's not a lot of inspiration in that. Right. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. It makes me think too of your tagline for this show, which I love, which is you can tell that story a lot of ways, right? You mm-hmm. can even, she's, she is now really doing great. I love that she got a second chance to raise her grandkids. I just love that. But you could tell that story in a way that shames her, that shames people that fall into addiction that are, you know, caught up in that world. And and we hear that all the time. I think, you know, if you think about the way that that drugs are talked about in a lot of um, public service announcements, in a lot of kind of medical literature, it is, it does tend to be really cold. Um, mm-hmm. And we, I think we instinctively want to say like, well, that won't happen to me. I, I would never do X and Y and Z thing. And so I would never be in that position. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, you don't know that. And I, right. to me, telling stories with compassion and empathy, I, mm-hmm. I just don't think you can go wrong, truly. If you right. are telling an honest take of the world and you are sharing it in a way that's uplifting and positive, I just don't think you can go wrong. Right. And observational too. It just occurred to me that maybe I'm wrong about sharing the story, even if she was still not in the right place. I mean, given permission, of course, or if she had, God forbid, if if she had died as a result of her drugs, um, it's still, you can still share that story in a way that honors 
her and brings dignity to her life if you're telling it from an observational perspective and not a judgment. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. That's the communication piece, right? That's the relational, mm-hmm. the, the root she matters of communication. To somebody, right? Yeah, yes. And I think the root of communication being to commune, to come together, mm-hmm. I think that's that's the key to it is, yeah. So um, how long have you been doing this? About uh, roughly how many memoirs have you helped oh. guide? Several dozen. We did count up when we were doing our rebrand. We've had 48 clients doing, you know, some doing memoirs uh, for a really long time. We did other kinds of things too. And a lot of the work we do still what we would call a hybrid memoir so that folks are telling their story. But also, you know, if you have a consulting business, if you work as a life coach or, you know, something similar, a lot of times the advice that you're giving to clients is built on things that you've been through yourself. So the best way really to help people get a sense of what it's going to be like to work with you is to read your story interspersed with the things that you learned along the way. So mm-hmm. um, we do all kinds of, of books, but yeah, I've, around 14, 15 years now, um, I've been working with people wow. and then we founded the company as a company in 2020. No, Perfect. Yeah, when people had so some many time people to did. write. <laughs> people had well, lots of time to write in 2020. <laughs> true. And we also suddenly had this technology that we're using right now. And suddenly everyone right. knew how to do a video call. Because before that, if you remember, right. you had to oh, use yes. Skype. You had to pay for... It was just a whole or thing. FaceTime or... Yes. Um, although I, I have to, you know, I have to say that I've been doing these podcast recordings since... Uh, October of 2017 using Zoom. Oh, so wow. I, I had a Zoom uh, subscription since like fall of 2017. Oh so, my gosh. I, yeah. I bet so many people needed your help figuring out how to use it when it <laughs> yeah. first started. I did do a lot of guiding. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite things was, um, and, and one of the most uh, short-sighted things I did was in early April, all through uh, end of March and April, I ended up doing uh, a few workshops on active listening online. Oh, I love that. And they were free. And I had up to, I don't know, I think I had like 12 on the first call and 22 on the next call and 30 on the next call. Um, It was the same workshop three times in a row for free. And I didn't collect email addresses. Ask for tips, like, and I, it, it was kind of stupid, but my idea was I really want to help people use this tool because there's going to be a lot of damage done because people don't understand how to use this technology and how to be an active listener if you're not sitting face to face with somebody. So, yeah, that was great. But, it's that you were doing the Lord's work. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you that when it comes to certain people, like, family members. I didn't have nearly the amount of patience that I had with strangers, but that's common. <laughs> that is always the way it goes for me too. <laughs> yes. So let's get back to, um, I, I asked you how many you've, you've worked with because I'd love to hear a story about a particular client, no names necessarily necessary, unless it's a book that you want to continue to promote and that works for this story. There are times in our businesses where we have an experience that makes us realize that we are 
in the right place and doing the right thing. Those those virtual active listening sessions that I gave, the responses to that, the people that got so much out of it, that was when I realized, oh, okay, there's there's a reason I'm doing this work, this particular mm-hmm. communication style of work. Tell me about a client where you walked away from it realizing, oh, okay, this is, I'm in exactly the place I need to be right now. Well, I'm, I'm torn here. I'm going to tell the personal story. Um, tell two but, stories. But yeah, well, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I, one thing that is, that I always love, we've seen this so many times, is our really ideal people to work with are people who have a passionate message. They they want to change the world, which so do we. So it works really well. <laughs> but that they are just right at a level where they can't seem to up level, right? They've maybe hit they've hit mid six figures, but it's like how to get higher without doing, you know, burning yourself out. And how do I get people in here without, you know, with the, with the limited resources you often have when you're kind of at that level up point. And we mm-hmm. we have had an, an, an really early client. Um, it was two career coaches and they had come out of Ivy League schools in um, a particular, this is an NDA project, so I kind of talk around it, but come out of yeah. Ivy League schools in a very particular field that is really infamous for not treating career professionals very well. So they had founded this company where they were going to help people get out of this pit of despair, basically, that they were seeing so many of their Uh fellow alumni come through. And writing that book, not alone, because you have to promote it, but they wrote that book and they were able to use that to do publicity for the book and for their company. And they hit that seven figure mark. And when they emailed me to tell me that, I like I stopped working for the day because that is what you hope yeah. that's the dream. Yeah. And it's really, it's hard to do that. I don't take all the credit or, you know, they were doing it. But to me, to be able to help other business owners like that. I know how hard it is. I'm right there in the trenches with you. And that is so, so rewarding when people can actually see that outcome, that change they want to make because they invested and they were brave enough to put their story out there. Right. And what I'm thinking is what really the benefit is, is that when you hit that seven figure, it's not about the money at that point. It's about that means that this many people have the potential for changing their lives and finding more happiness and satisfaction in them because if they're reaching that. Yeah. It's a numbers game and not in finance necessarily, but how many people are being positively impacted, influenced by this? I think so too. And I also think there's something, not just seven, you know, whatever your goal is when you hit it and exceed it, to me, there's also such a powerful mindset piece that mm-hmm. hitting and exceeding that, then suddenly so many more things are possible than you had ever imagined because you get so in your head about this goal that you want to hit. And I think it can mm-hmm. be really counterproductive. There's something to me about having that extra tool or that extra boost that people then get a little second wind and then they hit these goals that they hadn't imagined, blow their own minds. I love it. I love that too. So what's your second story that you were going to share? So this story- because yes, um, that was great, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's do another. Well, yeah. So we, this is, like I said, this is a personal story. So um, my, when we were kind of just founding as a, a company and my partner and I co-own the company and um, 
we're, you know, we're talking about it at family reunions and whatnot. And his, his dad called and said, you know, I don't know if he's going to go for this, but I would just really love to have Grandpa Deccant's story. And, you know, we were like, oh, well, we can do like a friends and family discount. That sounds kind of fun. You know, cool. Let's do that. So my, I coached my partner through writing it. He does mostly business stuff, but he was like, I don't know, I want to see if I can do it. And it's my grandpa. And so I coached him through the whole process and he got the book done. I'm very proud of it. It's called Oil Man. It is available on Amazon. We were just at the last stages, having it copy edited, having it proofread, doing all the design stuff. And then we got the call that Grandpa Deccant had pneumonia and they didn't think he was going to make it. And he didn't make it. Um, he had a great, very full life, which we know because we heard all of his stories, stuff that, that my partner had never heard before, that family members had never heard before. Um, but the way that it worked out was that the book came out within a couple of months of him passing away. And people were so grateful, truly. I mean, to have those stories and still, you know, we'll go to family reunions and things and that will be a topic of conversation. Um, and one, I'll tell you one of the stories because that's a heavy story, but I think this is always so funny. There was a story in there about this merry-go-round that the family had had, um, and everybody had a different story of how that merry-go-round came to be. <laughs> so, so in just some- for our listeners, this is old school. Merry-go-round was on the <laughs> old playgrounds, and it was like a big metal round platform with handrails, like a variety, maybe eight handrails on it. And I know that there's some listeners that this will not be familiar to. <laughs> it's it's like, it's called a merry-go-round because you would, as a kid, run next to it, holding one of the handrails and then jump on and let it spin you and whoever, all the other kids that are on it. So just, and we may be able to find a little YouTube video of what a merry-go, because they don't exist anymore, right? Yeah, With well- all the liability issues at playgrounds, they don't exist anymore, so. Truly, even as you were as you were explaining what it was, I was thinking, oh my gosh, why did our parents let us play on that? <laughs> I know. I'm just getting dizzy thinking about it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Dizzy on that thing. Because you wanted it to go super, super fast and then you would sit in the middle and it was just right. spinning. <laughs> I know. That makes me want to throw up a little bit right now. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> well, so but everyone had a different origin story. So um, you know. One of the daughters had said, oh, no, it was scrap metal. Dad brought home this scrap metal and he welded it. And I remember very clearly him making this merry-go-round. And then my partner's father, so the son, had said, oh, no, no, it was gifted from a neighbor had it. And they, you know, they were done with it and they brought it over on the back of their truck. And Grandpa Deckett said, no, I just bought it. (laughs) I remember buying it. And it was a big point of contention because we have these stories of our childhood or our life that we hold so dear, right? They're, they're part of who we are, but we had to put our foot down as a company. We said, it is the person whose name is on as the author. It's the person who says how it happened. And and one of the things that we say a lot to our, to our authors is that truth is more important than fact. So if Mm, something is true, yeah, if something is true, that's how it needs to be shared. Um, and, you know, I think there was an argument for like, oh, put them all in there. And I said, no, it's not your story. <laughs> it is Grandpa Deccan's story. And we're going to tell it the way that he told it. Uh, but I'm so grateful. And I know, you know, the whole family, we are so grateful that we got to capture those stories because 
there are so many family stories that are just lost. Right. That can tell you a lot about who you are because our identities are so wrapped up in those stories. And I think it is important for those, for the brother and sister, your uh, father-in-law and his sister to recognize that our memories are fallible and they can hold on to what they believe happened and it doesn't hurt anything. If that's the vision that comes up for them in that memory and it brings them any kind of happiness or comfort or entertainment value, then that's fine because our memories are fallible. And how many times have we told a story where our sibling is like that? That's not how it happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because right. All the time. We all remember it differently from different perspectives. Exactly right. And, you know, every time we remember something, the science tells us that we're reinventing it. We're replaying right. it. So you can have memories that are, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. They're totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't actually happen at all. That's what just came to mind too, is that um, when we are looking at these stories from this perspective, we can tell them the way that we want to. We can tell them the way we remember it. I think a critical factor too is to see it from an observational standpoint, especially when the temptation is to create some sort of a villain in the story. Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that is actually one of the pieces of advice we give really regularly is a way to know that you are not ready to write your memoir or tell your story is if there's any inkling of revenge, if there's any part of you that wants to write this book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. To get back yeah. at this person or to show the world what this person did to me. That is, first of all, that's not going to be a good book because no one else is invested in that as you are. It's not going to connect. Well, with except people. other people who are bitter. And the well, question is, is that really what you want to condone and grow? Sure. I yeah, mean, that, no, that's right. What bitterness grows in our communities and yeah. it, it's catchy. It is definitely a contagious feeling and bitterness, blame, all of those emotions um, definitely contribute to negative community emotion and experiences. So, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are people that that would resonate with. Yeah. And and do, you, do you really want to build that community of people who are angry and bitter? Is that who right. you want to spend time with? And you can't take it back. In a book or any right. other form, right. you can't take it back. So usually what I what I read from that is that you just need a little more gestation time. Because all of us heal from, I mean, not all of us. We try. Most of the people I talk to are really right. trying to heal from, from their experiences. And when mm -hmm. you do start crossing that threshold of healing and, and reflecting and really understanding that things that you thought were about you weren't really about you. And things that you thought right. were about that person weren't really about that person. That is when you have the wisdom to share with your readers that that you are going to uplift them and change their lives rather than just changing your life. Right. And blaming somebody else for things that happened in your life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Especially as an adult. Like there's a point. I always come back to this point and my my kids have heard me say this over and over again. And they are... Uh, 22 and 25 now, and both boys and my son's fiance have heard this from me. There's a certain age where you just have to take responsibility for your behavior. 
up until, I don't know, 22, 25 for boys, <laughs> 20, <laughs> 21, 22 for girls. <laughs> I know that's a little generalizing there, but um, <laughs> is when you get to realize that whatever happened in your childhood happened then. The, your behavior that you demonstrate who you are now from this point forward is up to you. You know what happened. You know what went wrong. You know what hurt you. Are you going to hurt others because it's now yours? You own this. You own your own behavior. And I think that's a, that's what you're saying in um, working mm-hmm. with authors is there's a certain point where you need to take responsibility for how you're sharing the story. Exactly right. Exactly right. Oh, intense. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) One more question for you, Amanda, as we kind of come full circle back to your clumsiness story. (laughs) Um, When you think about, uh, I know we can't undo the things that we do wrong. And there are times, I just recently had an experience where I did something wrong. I didn't see it at the moment as wrong. And then when I was called out on it, I was like mortified. And there's nothing I can do to fix it at this point other than do what I did, which is apologize, acknowledge, that's it. When you think about um, your own experience with that and all of this experience working with people who have maybe made some mistakes in their past, big mistakes or small ones, and they're still holding on to them. How have you been able to talk them through releasing that shame in order to learn from it? Because it's hard to learn when you're in the middle of shame. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're nodding. I can see that you've already, you have this experience in your head. I love it. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing that I think is so magical about what I get to do every single day is that the process of getting a book down, whether we're coaching somebody through the writing, whether we're doing the ghostwriting for them or whether we're editing to publish is that I have found over and over that the process of reading back your experiences on the page does something to give you the distance that you can then make sense of the feeling and because there's there's pieces of it right there's the feeling part there's the cognitive part there's the philo- the kind of philosophy part all those pieces are there in you it's just sometimes the feeling is so heavy that it's hard to see the other pieces or if you're an overthinker mm-hmm. the cognitive part might be so heavy that you can't see the feelings whatever yeah. it may be I don't know anyone like that. <laughs> no, it's definitely not me either. But I, what I find is that seeing it on the page gives you a distance and, and you, you've been saying observational, kind of almost an objective feeling mm-hmm. that you can look at it and really process that this is not something that only happened to you. It is not that there's something wrong inside of you, something broken that that is inherent. It is just that this is what life is. Life is not all good and it's not all bad and all of it's there. And it's really, like you said, it's really hard to see that when you're in the middle of that shame space, being able to step back really helps. Um, And then of course, you know, feel your feelings. (laughs) I always encourage people to, 
feel the feeling. Sit in it for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yep. And people will tell me, you know, when we ghostwrite for people, we'll send them a chapter a week and wait for their feedback. And sometimes the feedback, very often the feedback is I had to stop a few times and start again another time because it was so intense to read this back. But there always is a clarity and a calm when we finally hear back with the final comments on the chapter that I can just feel if they've processed it, or I can feel if they need a little bit more time. Mm, I love that so much, partly because we, before I hit record, we were talking about music and we're both musicians and that um, it's so hard to hear our own voice recorded sometimes. (laughs) And, uh, and it's, it is hard. And sometimes we, we need to listen to it in order to learn and grow and that's what I'm hearing from you is when you can write it down, when you can have um, a, somebody uninvolved that that isn't part of the story necessarily, take that observational standpoint for you on your behalf. That yeah. sometimes that's when you learn the biggest, most profound lessons and are able to put aside the shame because that's if if that's sticky, then it's it's not really a good lesson. Yeah. Oh, so well said. I would never have made that connection between listening to your own voice and feeling like, oh, what is this? <laughs> is that really what I sound like? <laughs> yeah, but I think that's very, very true. Learning to get that observational, that distance so that you can you can really be intentional. I think most of us want to be intentional. Most of us want to be thoughtful about things. It is hard to do that. But I'm I'm happy that our process repeatedly helps people get to that point. Mm, I love it. This has been so great, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of this depth and what you do without telling us what you do by your storytelling, <laughs> which is exactly right. It's exactly what I look for in my guests. So thank you. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Listeners, it's your turn. What is it that you're holding on to that maybe a little space can get you to the place of learning and sharing lessons so other people don't have to learn it the hard way? What are you going to write down your story that then you can maybe observe differently and reframe it so that you can learn the lesson you need to learn from it? And which of your family members are you going to reach out to with a cell phone and that record button? to hear some of their stories. I encourage you to look up the um, show notes associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com episode with Amanda Edgar, and you'll see all of the links associated with her website and her work and the books that she mentioned in this episode. Your stories don't define you, how you tell them will. Thank you so much for listening. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.